Please remain standing for our scripture reading, which comes from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Benjamin Kant, and I am the director of communities here with New City. And I'm going to continue us in our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, We've done Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and we begin Ephesians 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible or your worship guide, I invite you to get that out now uh, and turn to Ephesians 3. Now, recently I had the opportunity to to speak with a great man, Um, the kind of man who's humble and generous and insightful, the kind of person that when when he speaks, you really actually want to hear what he has to say. And and in our conversation, I began to notice that something was happening. Uh, I began to notice that he would would start a sentence, and I would lean in to receive some fruitful nugget of wisdom from on high. And then he would trail off into some digression. And, and, And I was sitting there catching this happening and thinking to myself, what is going on? He'd start a sentence back, Benjamin, I have learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances. What is it that you do again? What is, what's your work? Or, and I was like, no, 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 can we go back to that sentence? I just want you to finish that sentence because I want to hear it. I want to hear what you have to say. I don't know, maybe you know somebody like this. Maybe I'm just embellishing something. Uh, but, but I say all of this to say is that that's kind of what's going on in our text this morning. The Apostle Paul, the, the greatest pastor of the early church, has begun this sentence And then he goes into this 13-verse digression that is our passage this morning. And so if you would look with me at verse 1, he starts it off, he says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he trails off until verse 13, the end of our passage for today. And he doesn't pick up his train of thought again until verse 14, where we'll see next week. Now, you have to hear me say this. Uh, this text is one long digression, but it's purposeful. It wasn't an accident. One commentator said uh, that maybe what's happening here is as Paul begins, and he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, maybe what's happening here is he hears the clink of his chain and remembers where he is and why he's there. 
He's in prison. And, and Paul's a prisoner because he took a stand for the Gentiles, people like the Ephesians, the non-Jews of his day. And, and because of Paul's stand, he's now in prison. And he's writing this letter, but he's concerned that they might see that he's in jail and become discouraged. That they might, as verse 13 says, they might lose heart over what he's suffering for them. And so Paul planted this church in Ephesus, and he lived among them for three years. And, and now it's this growing church, and he's concerned that they do not lose heart because his imprisonment might be in vain. He wants to communicate to them uh, that they ought to have the same boldness that he has despite his imprisonment. And so as we look at our text, Paul's helping us see how do the Ephesians remain bold like Paul? How do you and I have boldness like Paul? How is it that we don't lose heart despite difficulties and setbacks? And so in doing that, that, Paul emboldens us by explaining, first, the mystery of the gospel, second, the ministry of the gospel, and finally, the manifold wisdom of the gospel. So he moves from the mystery of the gospel to the ministry of the gospel and the manifold wisdom of the gospel. Let's look at the mystery of the gospel together. Now, the word mystery is used in our English text four times. Four times. And, and what is a mystery? When, when you and I hear it, we, we might hear something, uh, we ha- might think of a mystery, and it might be like something that's difficult to understand or to explain, something that's mysterious, right? The word mystery evokes images of crop circles and Stonehenge and uh, the upside down from Stranger Things, and, and you hear mystery, and that's kind of what comes into your mind. But that's not exactly how the New Testament uses the word mystery, And I want to pay attention closely to how how Paul uses the word in order to really get an idea of what it means. So in verse 5, he says that the mystery was not made known in other generations because in verse 9, it was hidden for ages in God. In verse 3, God revealed it specifically to Paul so that he wrote it down briefly to the Ephesians in chapters 1 and 2. In verse 5, it was also made known to God's holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so a mystery in the New Testament sense is something that was hidden but now is made known. But it's more than that. It's also something that we could not have arrived at with our unaided human abilities and intellect. We couldn't have come up with this or dreamt this up about God on our own. And so Paul calls it a mystery. Now, what is this mystery? If you look at verse 6, it's explicit. He says right there, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, that they are members of the same body with the Jews, and partakers of the promise with the Jews in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. Now, if you're like me, you read through the New Testament and and you find yourself wondering, why was this Jew-Gentile controversy such a big deal? I mean, it comes up over and over again. And to put it really simply, it's all about access. It's all about access. Who is it that has access to the presence of God, to the promises of God, to the people of God? Who are the insiders and who are the outsiders? Who is welcomed in and who is not? Who is it that's privileged and who isn't? That's what this Jew-Gentile controversy is all about. 
And so verse 12 says to us that the, that the good news, the mystery of the gospel revealed is that in Jesus we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, my friend Rusty uh, would tell a story about this to, to kind of explain it. And he would tell about how his, his father has this really sweet cabin in the mountains. And if you showed up and knocked on the door and, and he opened it and you said, hey, could I stay with you? He would probably shut the door. But if you knocked on the door and you said, hey, I'm a friend of Rusty's, could I stay with you? He'd probably invite you in, uh, make dinner for you, prepare a bed, and invite you to stay as long as you'd like. What's the difference? The difference is, is that because you know Rusty, you get access to his father's house. And what the gospel is, is that because we know Jesus, we have, father, we have access to his father's house. And it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, <laughs> with a big, big yard. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. If, if you're in here like, what is going on? You're not missing anything. I promise you that. I promise <laughs> But what the gospel is about, this mystery of the gospel, is that we have access in Christ Jesus. Access. And so whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, black or white, sinner or saint, no matter who you are, you have unfettered access to God through his son Jesus by faith. That is the mystery of the gospel. And yet people were infuriated when they heard this so angry, so upset by this radically inclusive message that they threw Paul into prison. The Jews of Paul's day lost it. They, they flipped their lid when they heard that the Gentiles are co-heirs with them, inheritors of the promise, part of the same body. This is why Paul says in verse 1 that he's a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. Because Paul took a stand he took a stand for the full access of Jews and Gentiles in the people of God. And he's in prison for it. But why did this infuriate them so much? Why was it that the Jews lost it over this message? Well, because they believed themselves to be the privileged insiders. The ones who uh, had this access to God that nobody else had. And Gentiles, non-Jews, were at best distant from God, at worst disgusting to God. That was the view that they had. And, and maybe you remember this. Maybe you remember being in middle school and there was this kind of constant vying to see this, this jockeying who's in and who's out and where do I stand? Some of you are like, I'm in middle school right now. And I'm like, you know what it's like then. And, and what I want you to hear me say is that we still do this in our own ways. We still create boundaries and walls and, and dividing ways of deciding who's in and who's out. And so the Gentiles were the victims of this. They were the ones receiving this from the Jews. And, and my question is, why do we do this? Because it's not just a religious problem. And it's not just a non-religious problem. This is a human problem. And I think some of us do it because of elitism. We do it because we are the ones who are right and true, holy and chosen. And frankly, black and white thinking is just easier. It's more comfortable. It's easier to think that they are the bad guys and we are the good guys. And some of us do it because of tribalism. 
You know, we, we define ourselves, we identify ourselves by belonging, by being members to certain groups, certain tribes, you could say. Whether it's your race or your gender or your religion or your political party or your sports team or your social organization or where you live, we're a tribal people. And what happens when my tribe feels like it's changing or under attack because we're letting some dirty Gentiles in is we begin to circle the wagons and protect our tribe at all costs. We still do this today. And, and maybe it's not that. Maybe it's actually more of a scarcity mentality. Maybe we, we see this and we say, you know what, there's just not enough to go around. Life is a zero-sum game, and, and if you get this much piece of the pie, there's only this much left for me. If you have access to God, then it, it actually limits my access to God. Whatever the game is, again, this, this isn't just a religious person's problem, and it's not just a non-religious person's problem. This is a human problem. Despite the fact that most of us have grown up in a way, we still find ourselves vying to see if we can be on the in crowd and who's in the out crowd. And this still matters to us, even though we do it in a little bit more sophisticated of a way. And so as we see in this passage that, that left to our own devices, we would never come up with a gospel like this. Which is why it's a mystery that must be revealed to us. This, this mystery is one that comes to us by revelation. Now, the word revelation means to, to kind of pull back the veil, to make known something that was hidden, to reveal whatever it was that was concealed. Now, my wife, Alana, and I, for some reason, when we get a date night, one of our favorite things to do is to sit down and to watch murder documentaries on Netflix. It's called romance, okay? Now, if you don't know, uh, I don't know why we do this. If you do, come up to me afterward and explain it to me. But, but for some reason, we just enjoy these so much. And, and our favorite ones are the ones that at the end of the episode, some piece of juicy evidence just shows up and it totally changes the whole investigation. The way that we saw the entire case unfolding up to this point is radically changed because of this new light that this piece of evidence shines on it. Revelation is kind of like that. It's, it's something that you could not have come up with on your own, but when it shows up, it changes the way that you see everything. And this mystery was revealed. And we need God's revelation because we would never come up with this gospel on our own. It's too inclusive if anyone can get in on this. It's too humbling if we don't get special privileges. It's too out of our control if we can't merit our access to God. It's too self-effacing because what it says is that we don't get credit for being in. And so we would never come up with this, this gospel on our own. And so it's good news that it came to us by revelation. But listen, it's even better news that God, who revealed this to us, has chosen to publish it for us. He published that revelation in a book, in, in this book, now, the word publish actually comes from the word for public. You can see how they're, they're connected. And, and so what this means is God wanted to make himself known, and so he published his revelation so that everyone could find it here in this book. This revelation is it's public truth. It's not private opinion. 
It's accessible to all. It's not something that's only reserved for the elite few, whether that be some spiritual guru or some enlightened academic. And Paul, in verse 4, assumes that what he's saying is clear enough for everybody, even the children in this room, to understand what he's writing here. Because he says, if you read it, you can perceive his insight into the mystery of Christ. And I think Paul, in verse 3, talks about him writing this down. And in verse 4, he talks about his readers. I really believe Paul knew that he was writing scripture when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was making known, making public this mystery of the gospel to all people by having it published in writing. And so Paul knows that we can't grasp this gospel on our own. We need God to make it known to us. And Paul actually knows that that he knows this better than most people. Because for Paul, it was revelation that came and dramatically interrupted his life totally changed the trajectory he was heading and made him a minister of this gospel. And so we turn now and we look at the ministry of the gospel. Now, Paul, if you know his story, was an expert in exclusivism and in triumphalism. He was an expert in, he he was so proud of his religious and ethnic identity. He was hemmed in by this enormous wall of tradition and rules and laws and rituals that protected him and set him apart from everybody else. Paul knows what this is like to have an in crowd and an out crowd. And so when he sees this ragtag band of Jesus followers beginning to proclaim a new Messiah, he zealously hunts them down and has them either imprisoned or killed. He would drag them out, have them imprisoned. He would attack them. He despised everything about this Jesus and his so-called followers that he made it his life mission to be the chief opponent of this gospel. And so what was it that revolutionized this man's whole way of life? To ask it another way, what could take a zealous persecutor of Christians and remake him into a zealous preacher of Christianity? What could do that? And and if you're in this room this morning and you're you're skeptical of the Christian faith, this is a historical fact that you genuinely have to wrestle with. How is it that this religious extremist like Paul made a total about face and now he begins preaching a gospel of radical welcome to all who would have it through Jesus? How does that happen? And I'm just going to submit to you from, from the passage and from history that this happened through an encounter with the risen Jesus. He was interrupted. Paul was actually on his way to go root out some Christians, to go drag them out and imprison or kill them, and Jesus had other plans. Jesus shows up in, in, in this radiant light that it, in it, he knocks Paul down and blinds him so that Paul's physical eyes were as blind as his spiritual eyes attempting to peer into the mysteries of God. And so Paul, like you and I, needed revelation. And in Acts 9, where this story is told, it says this, Paul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Listen, that is you and I. That's you and I. Even though our eyes might be open, we see nothing if not for God's help. 
if not for God, making known Jesus to us. It's why we began this sermon by a prayer of illumination, asking the Holy Spirit to light up this text so we could see. Because our eyes are open, but we won't see anything without his help. And so the story continues, and, and Jesus sends this guy, Ananias, to go help Paul restore his sight. Now, Ananias is kind of this unsung hero of this story, because Ananias is understandably skeptical, right? I mean, I, I could imagine him just asking Jesus, um, Lord, this guy, Paul, he's the one that's been going around killing us. You know that, right? I could imagine Ananias, if, if I was him, I probably would have been like, hey, listen, Jesus, I've been reading the book of Judges. And I could just roll up and go Samson on this guy if you want me to. Give me a jawbone of a donkey. I'll kind of make things happen. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way this is going to work. And Jesus says this to him, go. For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is Paul's conversion. This is how he becomes a follower of Jesus. And so Ananias shows up, lays hands on Paul, and says, Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately Paul sees and is baptized. Do you see now? Do you see now what it is that turns Paul from an oppressor of the gospel to an expressor of the gospel? It was revelation. It was Jesus showing up and shining his light into Paul's life. And it's the only thing that we have hope for. And Paul, in our passage, talks about this. This is what he's talking about in verse 7 when he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints— he says that because he recalls how he persecuted and murdered people in the church. He calls himself the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light or to illuminate for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This experience of meeting Jesus was life-shattering for Paul, and yet he calls it a gift of God's grace. Jesus interrupted him. And so now, by grace, Jesus uh, has captivated Paul. It's why he says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He's saying, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Nero. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's in charge. He's captivated me. I belong to him, whether in chains or unchained. Here is the root of Paul's boldness and audacity. Not only was he blinded by the light of Jesus, but he was given insight into the light of Jesus. And now he views his whole life as oriented around this calling to enlighten, or as verse 9 says, to bring to light for everyone this mystery of Jesus. Paul is a man consumed by his calling to make known the unsearchable riches of Christ. I love this phrase in verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, do you know anybody who, when someone says don't or you can't, they, they kind of hear that as a challenge? You're like, hey, you can't jump off the roof into the hotel swimming pool. And they get this look on their face like, on their face like challenge accepted. Sometimes I can be a little bit like that. 
And so when Paul says the unsearchable riches of Christ, I'm thinking, let's call out the dogs and get our search on. But this word unsearchable speaks of something that cannot be traced out by human measurements. One commentator says it would be like a man tracking out the boundaries of a lake and discovering that it was not a lake at all, but an arm of the ocean. And that when he realized this, he, he realized he was confronted by the immensity of the sea. Or unsearchable might be like a bottomless rev- reservoir that despite our deepest dives, we cannot reach the bottom of it. So despite our best efforts, we won't be able to plumb the depths of the unsearchable riches of Christ. But as John Stott says, what is certain about the wealth Christ has and gives to us is that we shall never come to an end of it. So what are the unsearchable riches of Christ? What are these riches that he possesses in himself and that he gives to all who come to him? Well, we can collect some of the riches of Christ by reviewing where we've been in Ephesians 1 and 2. As we review these last couple chapters, we see that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. We have redemption through his blood on the cross. We have full forgiveness of all our trespasses. We are made alive together with Christ. We have nearness to God by the blood of Christ. We have reconciliation to God and one another. We have the end of hostility and the beginning of peace in him. We are members of the household of God. We are brought not only into his kingdom, but into his household. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We have access to the Father through Christ by the Spirit. We have a glorious inheritance that is God himself. We have good works prepared for us that we could walk in them. We are God's very dwelling place on earth, and we sit victoriously with Christ on his own throne. And we have an inextinguishable hope because as we look forward to age after age after age of God showing us constant, overwhelming kindness. And these are just the shallows of the depthless depths of Jesus Christ. The riches of Christ are unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, incalculable, and infinite. Which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so it is the lifelong joy of the Christian to search out these unsearchable riches of Christ. And as we, New City, continually and collectively meditate on the unsearchable riches of Christ, we will begin to display the manifold wisdom of the gospel. And so we've seen the mystery of the gospel, and we've seen the ministry of the gospel, and now we see that all of these are are so that, as verse 10 says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you see the progression? So, So Jesus made the gospel known to Paul through Revelation. Then Paul made the gospel known to everyone through preaching. And now we, New City, the church, we make the gospel known through our life together. And when he speaks of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, he's talking about spiritual beings, these cosmic powers, angelic beings that are both good and evil. 
And as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, when the church is being the church, united and holy, then the principalities and powers know that Jesus the Messiah is Lord and that they are not. And the Apostle Peter tells us that what God has done and is doing in his church are things into which angels long to look. And so if the good news is old news to you, don't tell the angels. They can't help themselves because they see the multifaceted wisdom of God as they look at a wise people who apply all that is in Christ to all of life. A united people who truly live as though we all have equal access to God through Jesus. A bold people who take courageous stands for the outcasts and the outsiders. A generous people who have the unsearchable riches of Christ so that they can give bags of money away to others. A welcoming people who are not deciding who's in and who's out, but are urging everyone everywhere to get in on this. And a hopeful people who trust the sovereign plan of God because we belong to him in body and soul, in life and in death. And so now we we come to an end and, and we finish where we began because hopefully now you can see how we can become as bold as Paul and not lose heart. But I want to leave you with a question. And here it is. Imagine for a moment everything you call yours in this world is taken from you. Picture yourself abandoned and forgotten by everyone in utter isolation, alone with your own heart. And then ask yourself, what do I have now? What do I now possess? What do you have now? What do you now possess? Because as John Stott says, Christ never impoverishes those who put their trust in him, but always immeasurably enriches them. And so only when you're rich with the unsearchable riches of Christ can you say with Paul, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am his captive. And what I suffer, I suffer for the glory of others. Let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of people. Let's pray. Holy Father, we we thank you that you have given us the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Jesus, we know that when you are lifted up, you draw all people to yourself. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that this morning you would do that work, that you would draw men and women and children to our King Jesus to search out his unsearchable riches. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.